You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? Jeremy Grantham, he is a legend, uh, the founder uh, of GMO. He is literally the G in GMO. He is the chairman uh, of the firm as well as sitting on the Asset Allocation Committee. Um, He has had a fascinating career. I could have spoken to him for hours um, but we only had him for a finite amount of time before his next, uh, actually, dinner. We were recording this late on a Thursday night. Uh, it's dark out. The Bloomberg studios are empty. It's kind of interesting uh, evening recording. But what can I tell you? His, his track record is astonishing. He's created a ton of wealth over the years. His philosophy of investing is pretty straightforward. Be a value investor. Be aware of the data. Understand when things are getting out of hand. Um, you may not get the timing perfect, uh, but when things become excessively uh, pricey, when the animal spirits run amok, when uh, the bubbles begin to form, you know how that ends, and it's never well. Uh, the history he's put together of uh, warning and positioning himself correctly uh, before the 19 late 80s Japanese bubble popped, uh, the dot-com bubble in the late 90s, the great financial crisis. Uh, his timing has been pretty extraordinary. He's been pretty bearish on U.S. stocks um, over the past few years and has become much more enthusiastic for emerging market value stocks. He has warned if you jump into EM, you're going to feel foolish and uncomfortable for a period of time, and that's your first buying opportunity. Then it becomes even more painful. That's your second buying opportunity. But if you have a 10- or a 20-year window, um, that's where you want to be. We discussed philanthropy. He's basically donated uh, all of his money uh, to his charitable foundation. And, of course, since it was Jeremy Grantham, we talked a lot about climate change. It's his favorite philanthropic issue, and he's basically warns that if we don't do something and soon, uh, there ain't going to be a whole lot of people around in 50 years, that we're standing on the precipice of a catastrophic um, set of, of changes. And he says he approaches climate change the same way GMO has approached investing. He looks at the data, he looks at the overall trend, and makes what he believes are uh, intelligent, reasonable 
decisions based on that data. And those decisions have led him to be extremely cautious about what's coming our way courtesy of um, rising carbon in the atmosphere caused primarily by burning wood, coal, uh, and oil and gasoline. And we need to uh, figure out if we want to be here a century from now or not. Uh, he talked about the propaganda industry that's been pushing back against this, how the oil industry and the Koch brothers have funded a disinformation cam- campaign, as he said, brilliantly, quite successfully, and lots of people no longer believe in science uh, because it's profitable for these companies to have the public not believe in science. I could talk about our conversation for hours and hours, but rather than listen to me continue to babble, with no further ado, my conversation with Jeremy Grantham. I have an extra special guest this week. His name is Jeremy Grantham, and he is one of the co-founders of GMO, where he is also chief investment strategist, a member of the asset allocation team, and a member of GMO's board of directors. Previously, he was co-founder of Battery March Financial Management. He began his career as an economist with Royal Dutch Shell. He did his undergraduate work at the University of Sheffield, got his MBA from Harvard Business School. Jeremy Grantham, welcome to Bloomberg. Hello. Pleasure to be here. So let's let's start with uh, Battery March Financial Management. Uh, that was 1969. GMO was 1977. I'm curious, the 70s were not a especially fun period to be an equity investor. How much of your investing philosophy was shaped by your experience in the 1970s? Well, the 70s were hugely kind to us, uh, contrary to what you're suggesting. We had a, a battle plan to invest all our money in small cap value mm-hmm. before institutionally they had invented small or value. Mm-hmm. Everybody invested with Morgan Guarantee Trust and they bought the Nifty 50, the great Avons and IBMs, and we bought Great Lakes Dock and Dredge, and uh, which no one had heard of. And... Uh, they went down with the rest of the market, but no more badly than the Avons. They all, everybody went down 50% in the great 73, 74 decline. Sure. And then where they rallied for a year, we just rallied and rallied, and the small cap inherited the earth. And between 74 and 82, a small cap outperformed by well over 100 percentage points. So did that experience affect your philosophy? Did that make you more of a small cap and value factor investor? It made me much more a devotee of trying to find which group might do better. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 82, we uh, basically abandoned small cap and went into large cap because they'd done so well. So we gave up our 10 years of background together. Dick Mayo and me, and uh, being the M in GMO, being the M in GMO, and uh, and changed because when something has a run and beats the market by a hundred points, you better be ready to abandon ship, and so we did. So before we get up to the 1980s, I want to stay in the 1970s. When you were at um, Battery March, you worked with Dean LeBaron, and the two of you kind of put together an idea that you first floated at a Harvard Business School seminar 
Um, and the concept was maybe people should just buy a broad index of stocks instead of trying to pick individual names. Yeah, tell, us, tell us how that played out. Uh, Dean had a, a friend, Lee Bodenhammer, and uh, this was a summer course for pension fund offices at uh, HBS. And uh, they'd written a special case where these pension fund guys were going to choose between the establishment, Morgan Guarantee Trust, they, J.P. Morgan, basically, and, and the other banks in New York owned the pension fund business back then. Uh, and the second player was uh, T. Rowe Price, which mm -hmm. was relatively new and represented growth, which was also relatively new. And, uh, and the third one was a little unheard of new company. They actually invented a new name for us, and uh, they had to decide between these three. And at the end of the class, when they had gone through their proceedings, as is typically the case, they, uh, the boss asked the visitors sitting on the back bench, had they got any comments? You're not allowed to talk during the class, but you usually get asked. And uh, I can't remember what Dean said, but what I said was, when I looked at the case and I looked at the data for the three players and the S&P, I was surprised that no one in the room had suggested giving their money to the gentleman from Standard & Poor's. Mm -hmm. That was it. Went over like a lead balloon, no one twitched. Uh, and on the car back in the drive, I said to Dean, why don't we take this seriously? Honestly, think about it. GM is said to have 100 different managers. What chance do they have of actually beating the S&P? Right. They're drowning in turnover and, and management fees. So. If you look at it, you know one thing with absolute certainty. The players are going to pay 1% or 2% a year to play the game, and the observers sitting at the bar, if you will, watching the poker game, are going to uh, have a market return. Therefore, by definition, the guys at the bar are going to beat the average of the poker players. Because that'll be a zero sum minus the, the poker cost. players, some of them may do brilliantly well by inflicting their transaction costs and their management fees on one of the less good poker players. And, uh, but at the end of the game, all the players will sum to minus one and a half, and all the observers will sum to zero, and, uh, and you would win. And why don't we suggest to the big players, instead, instead of having 30 investment managers or 100, that they put a big chunk of their money uh, into the market? So the entire logic was zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. which was a sufficient reason to do it then and is a sufficient reason to do it today. And no one was interested. We offered it. Dean was a brilliant propagandist. No, no one was interested. No one was interested. And he got written up um, the story uh, in uh, the New York Times magazine supplement and so on and so forth. And he got a lot of exposure. And at the end of a year, pension and investment, the trade rag, uh, jokingly gave us an award for the most talked about product with no business. <laughs> How did you first get interested in the challenges of climate change? When, when I'm giving my stump speech to financial people, I always hope that someone will ask me this question. And what I say is, you've seen the data that I've just gone through, and you're asking me this damn stupid question. Why, why would I be excited? If you've seen the data, the real question is, what the hell are you doing not being excited? Mm -hmm. 
How is it possible that the great majority of you sitting in the audience have done nothing and know very little about this threat, which is the most severe one you will have to deal with uh, for the rest of your life? There was a book out not too long ago called Windfall, and one of the conclusions of the book was the dry areas are going to get drier, the wet areas are going to get wetter, uh, where it's hot, it's going to get hotter, where it's cold, it's going to get colder. And the way this falls out across the, the planet is disproportionately on the poorest people in the world. Uh, does, does that still ring true? Is that what we're looking at going forward? Yeah, I think in, in general, the consequences of climate damage are, are felt in the most sensitive areas, which are occupied mainly by the poor. They, they live in the least desirable parts of the world, the, the semi-desert zones of Africa and the Far East being classic examples. However, the cold, the cold areas are not getting colder. Actually, the, the further north and south you go towards the poles, the faster it's warming up. Mm -hmm. And the closer you get to the uh, equator, the, the more slowly it's warming up, which interestingly has, has some profound effects because the wind draws its power from the temperature differential between the pole and the equator. And if you narrow that by having the poles get warmer faster, you slow down the winds. So now hurricanes are moving 10% slower. So you're more likely to have a hurricane amble its way across your territory and rain a whole lot more rain, mm -hmm. which is what happened in spades in Houston, where it rained 30 inches in three days. You have raised the question as to whether or not energy will give us a serious and sustained set of problems over the next 50 years. What, what you're thinking about energy, looks like parts of the world are transitioning to renewables somewhat slowly, but it, it's moving forward. Tell, tell us about energy. Well, the technology in energy has been unexpectedly uh, great. It's moving at great speed, has uh, thousands of new enterprises trying to push it along. And in general, it's been a, a very pleasant surprise. Meaning the costs have come down, the efficiency the has gone up. The costs of wind have come down more than anyone dreamt possible 30, 40 years ago. The costs of solar have come down the same. Um, solar is now equal or cheaper than coal. Is that a fair statement? A modern utility plant for solar or wind in any one of half a dozen better states is cheaper to construct and run than it is merely to run an existing coal plant. Wow. It's actually fully costed cheaper than the marginal cost of the best nuclear and the best coal plants. Do, do you see much of a future for nuclear? My, my motto is never underestimate science and also, unfortunately, never underestimate Homo sapiens' ability to screw it up. Right. The, uh, but in terms of nuclear, there are endless uh, attempts to come up with what you might call third-generation fusion, uh, trying to bypass some of the problems that have slowed them down for 20, 30 years based on the new technologies. They have so much invested in, in, in the old approach to fusion that they're kind of, now they're 30 billion in the hole, they feel they have to keep going. And some of these new people working on a shoestring may, uh, may get lucky, may come up with a, a form of fusion. There was, there was a buzz a couple of years ago about thorium reactors that kind of came and, and went. And even on uh, fission, mm -hmm. uh, thorium or new engineering tricks, small scale, uh, you can't rule them out. If you come back in 30, 40 years 
I think there's maybe a 50-50 shot that one or the other will have come through with something that is helpful. Um, of course, by then, energy storage, which is the key to wind and solar, uh, may have become so cheap that it's, that it's not really necessary, even, even if it's technically feasible. Um, solar and wind, which are continuing to decline, by the way, out into the distant future as far as one can see. I'll just give you one example of that, and that is that uh, the winds over the ocean are 70% faster than the winds on land. Mm -hmm. And uh, the bigger the wind tower, uh, much more efficient it becomes. It's the uh, swept area, so that a 20-foot blade doesn't give you twice the energy of a 10-foot blade. It gives you four times. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you go up, the wind speed increases, and the power of a windmill is a cube of the wind speed. That's why hurricanes of 140 miles an hour are so much more deadly than 120. It sounds like it should be 17%, but it's 50 or 60%. Wow. And so if you can build a truly giant windmill, and the ones you drive past on a cycling trip in Holland are two megawatts. And the one you can order from GE, if it's still around, for delivery <laughs> in 2022 uh, is 12 megawatts. Uh -huh. And that is almost as high as the Eiffel Tower, believe it or not. Wow. And they are massively efficient. And you can only build them in, in, in the oceans where the wind is more constant. And if you could find the technology to build it in the North Atlantic and have cables that could carry it back to civilization... Uh, the wind is blowing 80-plus percent of the time in the winter when you really need it in the northern hemisphere. So there is a lot of potential up our sleeve for the next few decades. In the end, I think we will have a plentiful supply of green energy. We will not, as a civilization, be brought to our knees for a lack of green energy. The problem will be, how long has it taken us to get there? So we will get plenty of energy in 50 years. We'll be fully decarbonized, I should think, in 100 years, maybe sooner. But the damage that will have been done by then as the carbon dioxide count rises, we have seen and been amazed, including the scientists, by the way, at the rate at which the damage in fires and floods and the hurricanes and the speed they build up their power, uh, droughts and floods for agriculture, we've all been horrified by how quickly that has escalated. And if you extrapolate what is going on today, we have no hope of controlling this for one and a half degrees. That is a, merely an intellectual exercise. We have no real hope at two degrees. We're going to have to fight and scratch and do much better than we are doing today to keep it below three degrees. And at three degrees, all manner of bad things are already happening. And some of them may actually get out of control, uh, become self-reinforcing mm -hmm. uh, vicious cycles. There's no guarantee that that will not happen uh, any time in the next uh, few decades. So, so let's talk for a moment about agnotology or culturally constructed ignorance. Um, you have a line that I'm intrigued by. You wrote, the misinformation machine is brilliant. Please explain. The, the Koch brothers and, and the exons of the world have been basically funding a disinformation for 30 years, maybe longer. And uh, they have uh, helped set up institutes, uh, right-wing institutes, who uh, basically defend the idea that climate change is a hoax, uh, are in that sense anti-science. Mm -hmm. And they've done it well. They've been persistent. They've funded it, if you will, generously. And they have achieved 
remarkable results. In comparison, science has been diffident and cautious, careful not to overstate anything, and, and in that care, they have guaranteed they understate everything. And as I like to tease them, it may be dangerous to overstate most things in science, but one thing is absolutely certain, and that is it's dangerous to understate climate change. If by understating it, by being too cautious, too careful, you, you uh, influence a politician to underreact, you influence the general public to underreact, you may be making a huge, painful, dangerous mistake. So the tobacco industry managed to keep people confused about uh, the impact of tobacco for decades and decades before they ultimately had to make a multi-billion dollar, multi-decade settlement. How long will it take before the carbon industry uh, similarly stops pulling the wool over so many people's eyes? I think we're changing very rapidly. This last couple of weeks, there's been a confluence of reports uh, and uh, coupled with the terrible uh, forest fires burning all the time in California. Regrettably, uh, those natural horrors are, seem, seem to be necessary to move uh, public opinion. But the, the confluence of that tragedy with all these major reports, one from NASA, a government uh, agency, uh, and, and major one from the UN, uh, IPCC, uh, talking about the chances and costs of holding it at one and a half degrees centigrade, and 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 also three or four other articles in peer-reviewed, seriously important journals, what I would call the top three science journals. That confluence has created an enormous amount of of attention in the press, which is so rare, and it's played and it's played, in my opinion. And I think Trump has agitated the science world into standing up and actually stating now for the first time in terms that represent their honest belief. So I think the worms have turned fairly big time. I, I used to uh, tease them. I had an, actually a commentary in Nature, perhaps the number one journal, and it was called uh, Be Brave, Be Persuasive, Be Arrested if Necessary. <laughs> and it was haranguing these guys for not stepping up. Well, now Trump has done uh, what many people couldn't, and he's stepped up. Uh, they have stepped up, I should say. Let's talk a little bit about philanthropy. I, I read a fascinating statistic. Only 2 to 4% of all charitable donations made each year go towards environmental causes. Is, is that possibly right? It, sadly, it's absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's tragic. It, it reflects, I think, the motivation for a, a lot of uh, charitable giving, uh, which to be uncharitable is to move in the right circles and be recognized for what you do. And you move with Illuminati and you go to dances and, and, and balls and are photographed and put in, in the Tatler. And, uh, and so it goes on. And in comparison, lowly defense of the environment uh, is not very uh, good for promoting your, uh, your, your life in, in, in smart circles. It's, it's a kind of country cousin, and, uh, and it gets 2%. Even though without solving the climate problem, your colleges, your museums, everything uh, in the end is not going to be worth much if we can't maintain a fairly stable uh, global civilization, uh, which is seriously at risk in almost any 
serious scientists would confirm that. So let's talk a little bit about the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment. What, what sort of activities does that fund? First of all, let me say it has 98% of my accumulated ill-gotten gains from the financial world. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> that is a pretty effective statement of how serious I think it is. I don't even see it really as philanthropy. I see it as defensive investment, trying to look after my children, grandchildren, and, and their progeny uh, indefinitely. And uh, I am always amazed that more people don't see it that way. Uh, I'm not a scientist, and you don't, but you don't have to be a scientist to uh, understand uh, the science that is coming down the road so fast. So let's talk a little bit about um, your long-term goals. Uh, how do you specifically identify different recipients that you fund? You, you fund a lot of existing groups as well as some of uh, your own new projects. To start with the exciting stuff, 20% of our corpus um, is invested in green investing by us directly uh, in, in, in venture capital. Mm -hmm. So, And I have three very industrious, sharp helpers, and, and we spend, I spend as much time as I can, and they spend all their, all their time, really, um, chasing down great opportunities in this field. And one of the rules we have is they have to be capable of really making a, a difference, changing the probabilities of surviving all, all, all of these stressful points. And we spend a lot of time face-to-face -face with scientists and, and entrepreneurs, scientists slash entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And it, it's uh, amazing what they're up to. They have done uh, in incredible things. I'll just give you a few examples. We. Uh, our RNA is the kind of engineering part that sends messages to the DNA what to do. And the problem with it was it's so so expensive to isolate uh, that a lot of work just couldn't be undertaken. It was $1,000 a gram. And we bumped into a group that with a completely different approach can now make it at 35 cents a gram with a target of 10 cents next year. Wow. Uh, that's the kind of order of magnitude you need to uh, be disruptive. And, and having obtained the material, they can now design uh, endless things. But one of them they started with, a very obvious one, was to send the instructions to a, a very expensive uh, beetle, the Colorado potato beetle, mm -hmm. um, that can devastate whole fields in, in kind of one sitting, as it were. And the RNA says, are, are you a Colorado beetle? Yes, I am. Uh, please proceed to this part of your DNA. Now we will turn off this particular switch. And what that does is unique to that beetle, it will make it impossible to digest cellulosic fiber. So the beetle munches away on the potato and dies of starvation and drops harmlessly to the ground where it's not even poisonous and can be eaten up by the other local insects. And all of the literally poisonous uh, insecticides that previously were used can be dispensed with. I mean, that, that is the kind of thing that could really change the world. And another one is we, we fund a lightweight vehicle. Uh, the trouble with the Tesla, I just received my Model 3, and I'm, I'm thrilled by it, by the way. But uh, it weighs 3,000 pounds, mm -hmm. uh, 3,500 pounds. And uh, it's moving 
150 pounds of me down the road. Right. Uh, and the vehicle we're funding uh, via MIT work is uh, under 800 pounds. Is that like a composite material that's being constructed? Yeah, it's uh, carbon fiber protection around a three-wheeler. And you could say it's a glorified, uh, comfortable motorbike with one or two passengers and room for some groceries and, and keeps the rain off. But it's also uh, the most streamlined vehicle on the road, uh, moves like a rocket ship, uh, entirely electric, of course, and it has a, a, a range far beyond any reasonable needs. The um the material the the composite stronger than steel but a fraction of the weight is that the goal? It's ten times ca more capable of absorbing injury and still bouncing back wow. than steel, and uh, of course very much lighter. Whether it's a tenth of as light, uh, I should think probably something like that. And you mentioned the potato beetle. Uh, I have to ask about agriculture in general because I know this is a topic that's been very worrisome for you. Um, I think most people are aware of the great die-off of bees. Maybe it's a, a pesticide. We're not exactly sure what it is. How dangerous, how threatened is the food supply of Homo sapiens given all the changes that's going on? I, I actually think that the intersection of food problems with a rapidly growing population, particularly in Africa, is the most direct threat of climate change, because climate change makes the growing of food that much harder. A report from the Proceedings of the National Academy said that they expect, if nothing is changed in the current agricultural processes, that uh, the grain productivity will drop by 35 or 40 percent by the middle of this century, 2050, around the corner. And, and the UN will tell you we need a 50 percent increment to keep feeding the cattle that the Chinese want to eat, etc. And uh, the the second biggest problem that may be burning faster even than climate change is toxicity. And uh, they have kind of flashed onto, uh, we're not looking for trouble, we want to keep life simple, and we can't because these problems are all interrelated. But let's start with the insects. Two years ago, a wonderful group of amateur insect lovers in Germany uh, looked at... Uh, 63 forest preserves in Germany. So they're not around refineries. They're in a forest, protected forest. Mm -hmm. And they measured that from 89, 1989 until now, 75% uh, of all flying insects had gone missing. I mean, this is absolutely catastrophic. People felt there must be something wrong, but it was done so meticulously mm -hmm. with Germanic thoroughness, one has to say. Right. Uh, and, and there is no possibility of, of a major error. They put out the same net, the exact same net in the same part of the forest on the same day of the year, and they'd go back and back and had thousands of measurement periods over, over that uh, time period. And then, to make matters worse, in the last six weeks, a, a similar study in the Proceedings National Academy of Science once again, which is generally considered the second most important science journal, came out with an insect study in a protected a semi-tropical forest in Puerto Rico, which was protected by the King of Spain long ago. Mm -hmm. And again, to everyone's horror, 75% approximately of the flying insects were missing. The birds that fed on insects were down by 90%. The birds oh. that fed on seeds weren't down at all. The frogs and lizards at the insects were down by 50%. And the impact on the soil is very hard to find out. But 
unless we're careful, a lot of the uh, compost and leaves and, and dung is going to be left there unprocessed. And pretty soon, soil will not be able to do what it does. And also, of course, the effect on pollinators. You lose the pollinators, you lose 40% of the value of all your agriculture. Uh, a lot of the, fr all the fruits need pollination, all flowers need pollination. And no one yet we've been able to find can tell us the cascade effect of going from where we are, minus 75% to 100. So how come no one knew this? And it turns out no one has been studying insects. So why not? And it turns out because you can't get grants, because it's a boring damn topic in the past. And, and no one was funding the research. The only research that we knew were on uh, monarch butterflies because they're a kind of trophy right. insects and bees because they're commercially important. And we knew that they were under terrible duress and we assumed that was unique to monarchs and bees. And it isn't. It's, un it's common to all flying insects. So the bee die-off that's been in the news for the past five or so years is not so much a bee die-off as it is a winged insect die-off. A wing, a flying insect die-off, yes. We know that chemicals that are commonly used can have terrible effects on fertility rates. Mm -hmm. Now we know by a study that's only two weeks old where some guys in East Anglia responding to the Puerto Rico study grabbed a beetle and quickly, because they reproduce so quickly, uh, ran it through various cycles and found out what happened when you raise the temperature. And because everyone supposed that in the Puerto Rico study, it was the rising temperature of the forest that was doing the damage. Insects in the tropical forest are used to no change in temperature. And suddenly you have bumped it up almost overnight in a way, two degrees centigrade. Mm -hmm. And the distribution means that out there in the tail, those rare nights when it's four degrees have gone from one a year to 15. So they put these beetles in the lab and they gave them a heat wave of four degrees extra for five days a typical heat wave that we've all suffered through, and it lowered their fertility by 50%. Wow. And then two weeks later, they gave them a second a second heat wave, and they were sterile. Really? That's quite And a lot of people wrote in uh, who were studying humans and other mammals and saying, yes, of course, sperm count is terribly sensitive to heat, and this, ring, this rings very true. But in Germany where they have tolerance, where the temperature does change, we know it's more insecticides. There are these multiple reasons. Exotic insecticides, fumes from coal burning, mercury, etc., wafting through the air, and temperature changes. It's just turning out to be a brutal war for insects. And without them, E.O. Wilson, the famous insect ant sure. guy, would say, uh, we can do without humans, but we absolutely can't do without insects. Huh. Last question on, on philanthropy. Um, you created a prize for excellence in reporting on the environment. What, why is such a prize necessary? Uh, we created it because there wasn't enough going on, and we abandoned it after a few years um, because in the great fall-off on print, uh, the, the first guys to go with the bottom of the totem pole. And the mm -hmm. bottom of the totem pole, sadly to say, were their environmental journalists. Sure. So pretty soon we found we were trying to award a prize to a non-existent group of journalists. And we thought we can use that money. It, it wasn't tiny. We can use it to get direct investigative journalism done and research, direct research done. And it was much 
I think, much more effective to do that. Quite fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about the current state of investing. I, I read something you had written some time ago that I found somewhat shocking, but I guess I shouldn't. From 1998 to 2000, you wrote that GMO lost half of its book of business. Uh, you guys had turned cautious while the market was screaming higher, warning of the dot-com bubble. In fact, I should preface my remarks by saying you presciently warned of the Japanese bubble in the late 80s, the dot-com bubble uh, in the late 90s, the financial crisis and housing collapse in the mid-2000s. What was that experience like in 99 and 2000? And did you sort of have a repeat of it in 07, 08? 07, 08 was the only thing we nailed. We, we got it pretty well, the, the timing down right and, and lost very little business going into it. Um, 90, 98, 99 was entirely different. We had a good record running through 97. And you normally think you have three years in the institutional business and, and we lost half our business in less than two and a quarter years. Right. Uh, and, and why was that? It's, it's because it's completely untrue that you lose business in down markets. In down markets, the clients become catatonic in a serious decline and they wait to see what has happened when the smoke has cleared and their nerve has returned. But in a bull market, they are absolutely dripping with adrenaline and they're uh, exchanging ideas on the golf course and they can't wait to, to make more money than their neighbor. And uh, you underperform in a bull market and your life uh, is, is, is reduced in length. Uh, their, their patience uh, drops like a stone. Barton Biggs had a famous quote, um, bullish and wrong and they're angry at you, bearish and wrong and they fire you. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yes, I think that's a very fair statement. There is nothing you can do more dangerous to your career than, uh, than underperform in, in one of the great enthusiastic bubbles. And anyone who was around in 98, 99 is lucky. They experienced a bubble bigger and better than 1929, a full of sound and fury and dot coms. And the real test that I love is that you went to the Greasy Spoon uh, in Boston, and instead of watching the Celtic replays, you were suddenly watching Talking Heads on MSNBC and other channels uh, recommending the latest dot-com, pets.com, or whatever. And that was right before an 80% or so collapse. Um, we actually predicted and, and were quoted in The Economist of saying the S&P we expected to drop by 50% and the NASDAQ by 75 And the S&P dropped by 50.0. <laughs> right. And the NASDAQ by 82 uh, so um, they, they not, not too bad. They were catastrophic declines for almost everybody. So after you were proven right about the dot coms, did did the clients come? The half the book that left, did they come back? I'm afraid to say, not a single client that I'm aware of wow. came back on the grounds that yes, we had been right and would have saved a lot of money, and they'd made a mistake. Many other clients came back who felt that they would have stood their ground and we were their kind of guys. Mm -hmm. And so the business flooded in and we made up all our losses with a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. uh, indeed, that was a lovely time to live through for us. So let's talk about the current circumstances. Uh, I would describe you as bullish on emerging market value, but bearish on U.S. 
large cap stocks. I'm, I'm using your forward seven-year forecast as a basis. Uh, let me put a little, little, some numbers on that. Seven-year forecast, U.S. large cap stocks minus 3.9%. Is that per annum or is that total? Per annum for seven years to get it down to fair value. And then EM value, you're talking about 7.7% on the positive side. Which is, in fact, a little cheaper than it needs to be in the long run. So that means you could sit back with that and hope to get a decent return in perpetuity. So one would think um, you should be lightening up on U.S. stocks here and buying EM value. Is that a- Well, that would be a very conservative statement. Mm-hmm. I think uh, what you should do here is sell all of your U.S. There has never been a bigger gap between the U.S. and emerging than there is now. And those opportunities don't come very often. And uh, they have a very old-fashioned feel to them. And I describe it basically as you buy when they're very cheap. They become extraordinarily cheap. You suffer. You double down, maybe suffer a bit more, and then you win. And if you can take the pain, you always win on those kind of bets. There's very little chance that you'll come back in 10 or 20 years and emerging will not have beaten the pants off the U.S. Do you look at specific countries or regions, or is it just buy all of EM? You you do the best you can to optimize the return. And I don't want to get into my colleagues' territory. Mm-hmm. But yes, you would weight the, the, the better-looking countries in terms of true value, growth, compared to cost. And... Uh, and pick the best stocks and the best industries to the best of your ability. Earlier this year, you talked about a potential U.S. equities melt-up before the next down cycle. Are we still looking for a melt-up? I think the odds have dropped way down uh, because we're we're living in a rather ancient economy and a rather ancient stock market. Both of them are are two of the longest uh, that there's ever been. and we were doing splendidly through January. January, as you remember, was a wonderful speculative month. Uh, and, and the market was up 8% for the month. And, uh, and then we got into this strange era where the administration rattled the currency markets, which whiplashed through, as it usually does, to the riskier end, uh, the emerging market end. And the dollar is in a crisis, the blue chip. So the dollar was strong, helping local stock prices. And, uh, and then we had trouble with uh, agreements and allies and uh, NATO and- uh, Go down the list. Go, go down the list. And it created a, not an undercurrent, but an overcurrent, if you will, of, of nervousness on, on many fronts. And that is not the juice with which a, uh, a great bubble uh, uh, proceeds. Uh, that didn't exist in 98, 99. We had Greenspan saying uh, the, the dot-com and, and the internet would drive away the dark clouds of ignorance and introduce a permanent new era of higher this and higher that and better this. Uh, it was almost poetic. And this time we had everyone going from one little nervous twitch to another. So I think uh, it was nipped in the bud. Now, having said that, the market has a history of being resilient Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, it's quite likely, uh, since we're in the sweet spot of the presidential cycle, this is the time when presidents look to the Federal Reserve to stimulate the economy uh, because it needs at least a year running start to produce the best labor for election. Sure. 
And what moves the dial on election day, we studied at some considerable length, and it's the shift in employment six months up to the election. A year before, it doesn't matter. It's all forgotten. Mm -hmm. Six months before the election, you've got to have uh, a a strong-looking labor uh, movement, uh, labor uh, results. And uh, to do that, you've got to stimulate the economy a year or 18 months ahead of it to get the lag effect. And that's what they do. And they've done it since 1932. Uh, The returns in the seven-month window from October of this year through April of next year in every presidential cycle, which is the theoretically perfect time to do economic stimulus, since 1932, that has beaten the remaining 41 months Wow. of the 48-month presidential cycle. Just think about that. The seven months has beaten the 41 months. So that's your Since 1932. Up. So this is the last gasp opportunity for a melt-up. I don't think it's 50% any longer, mm-hmm. but I think it's maybe 25% chance that we will have a handsome rally between now and the end of April. You, you mentioned all of the international uh, intrigues and, and various policies and packs and what have you. I, I would be um, not doing my job if I didn't ask you about the tariffs and trade wars. What is the impact of this president's, who has said it's easy to win a trade war, um, what ha- what is the impact of these tariffs? Is this potentially inflationary? Is this potentially um, something that could knock the economy uh, off its footing? So net-net, uh, it's deflationary. because Deflationary. It- because it discourages global growth. Okay. And so you have weaker growth, slightly higher unemployment, and and uh, as we've seen with pre- General Motors, to and say that the puts least. pressure on wages, and it's very hard to have inflation when you have downward pressure on wages. So how are you going to have a pre- stimulative presidential cycle eighteen months in advance if there's a tariff trade war going on? That doesn't sound like it's productive for the party that has the White House. No, it's not productive. So two things would have to happen for my 25% chance to come right. You'd have to uh, have the Fed ease up a bit. Mm-hmm. Slow uh, slow the rate hikes? Or? Slow the rate hikes. No, they can have one or two, mm-hmm. but not four or five. Okay. And, and to have the administration cool it on trade wars and make a, quote, surprise announcement of an agreement with China... And, and there's your melt And then you get some resilience. Mm, that sounds pretty good. Can you stick around a little bit? I have some more questions for you. Yes. We have been speaking with GMO's Jeremy Grantham. If you enjoy this conversation, check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things investment-related. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you for so long. I don't know if you remember, we, you and I had a lunch uh, sometime last year, and uh, I should have recorded that. That was endlessly fascinating, and all it did was remind me of all the questions I had for you. Before I get to my favorite questions, there's one or two things I missed that I want to get to. Um, God, I could keep you here for another hour, but I know you have places to be. So first, you describe yourself as GMO's chief of propaganda. Explain that title. To be honest, I have not been making important investment decisions for quite a few years. I think my last input was exiting emerging markets in uh, July of 08. That worked out to be pretty good. Uh, that worked out good splendidly. And it was the 12th hour, but what the hell? Right. <laughs> Saved an amazing amount of money. Um, but other than that, we have terrific teams. I'm 80 years old. They should be making their own mistakes and, uh, and, and making their own hits. Um, so what, what did that leave me, I asked myself. Um, and loosely speaking, communications, or as I like to call it, propaganda. Right. Um, and since I've always been drawn to big picture items, that, that's a natural cannon fodder for propaganda. I have overwhelmingly more interest in the big, the big issues of climate change. Uh, do we have enough resources to get the job done? What is the role of growth in the long-term economy when you can't have compound growth in a finite planet? How are we going to deal with that? Uh, what is the role of capitalism now that it's so profit-centered for the short term and has little interest in the long term? Uh, what are the consequences? What are the consequences of the U.S. corporate system having so much power that it practically controls the government and the profit margins have gone up 30 40% and squeezed labor down by three or four points? The consequences of these kind of issues, absolutely fascinating. And frankly, been there, done that in terms of stock picking and industry picking and sector sure. picking, and I'm I'm happy to leave that to my colleagues. And um, so you mentioned big picture. Let's talk a little bit about the world of bubbles. You were right there on the Japanese bubble, uh, perhaps a little early on the dot com bubble, on the Great Financial Crisis. The timing was uh, as good as it gets. So uh, the first question I have to ask related to bubbles is. Are there any visible these days? Where and when? What do you see well, is- To take a little bit of credit from a generally tough uh, environment, back when I suggested uh, a melt-up, I did point out in a little box in that paper uh, that I thought Bitcoin was a classic bubble, the essence of bubble, and it was 15,000 the day I wrote it. Right, well, from the highs, we're down, what, about 75, 80%? Yeah, so for something that volatile, this is by no means impressive. Uh, a 50% decline would, would be an intra-week setback. 
Right. When We're you down ju- to about 4,000 from About 4,000 from yeah. 15,000. But when you've gone up 15 times in, in no time flat, you might reason, reasonably think of a, a bubble breaking as a 90% decline. Right. Uh, where, where else are you looking at bubbles? Anything else uh, standing out? For me, a bubble requires overt euphoria and other demonstrations. And they, to me, have been a, a little lacking. Right. Uh, perhaps they were beginning uh, to take place in, in, uh, in the fangs. Mm-hmm. And the fangs have now receded in what feels more like uh, reorienting the market, moving from one group to another, uh, than the beginning of the end of a major collapse. A rotation, not a bubble pop. A rotation, popping. thank you. Uh-huh. Not a bubble pop. Uh, to me, it feels that way. Uh, and, and at the moment, once again, as we've had dominating this 10-year, 9-year bull market, we have been climbing the wall of worry. There's always plenty to worry about. And you read it freely. It's not dripping with optimism. When was it? I'll tell you when it was for a brief period back in January. Right. <laughs> Other than that, this has been a, 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 quite a pessimistic major bull market, has it not? Uh, the most hated bull market uh, in history. Um, in fact, there's an argument to be made that since the dot com, I'm sorry, since the great financial collapse, investors seem to be suffering from a form of post-traumatic stress, and they've been very reluctant to embrace the bull uh, with both hands. Yeah, is that what's needed in order for that, that- to get a classic bubble breaking? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's needed, and and what provided the juice in '08 was the housing market. Because uh, we defined in the old days a, a bubble as a two sigma once in a 40-year breakout. Mm-hmm. And um, the U.S. housing bubble did a three sigma. <laughs> That's a once in several hundred years. Right. Never in history had the entire U.S. real estate market gone up a lot at the same time. It would bubble in Chicago, crash in Florida. Uh, but this one, previously. Every, and this one, everything went up together. And it took... Years of moral hazard and the Fed talking it up and the, and, and the Fed saying things about the housing market that the U.S. housing market, unquote, merely reflects a strong U.S. economy. Sure. Et cetera, et cetera. And, and then the one I really loved, the U.S. housing market has never declined, meaning it never would. Which, by the way, is completely false. If you go through history, there are many examples of the housing market declining. Declining, but only a little bit. And what he should have said is... The U.S. housing market has never had a major bust because it has never had a collective major bubble. And now it has had a major bubble. The question that they should have been asking is, has there ever been a major bubble in anything that didn't bust? And the answer to that is, in general terms, no, but there is a special case in real estate. If you live in a real estate market where the zoning is tightly controlled, right. uh, Sydney, London, San you Francisco. Can, San Francisco, you can have aberrant-looking bubbles. If you live in a real capitalist market uh, like uh, the U.S., Spain, Ireland, where house prices went up and you covered the whole of Ireland in new houses and, you, and the, the south of Spain began to sink under the water from the weight of new apartment buildings, right. and the U.S. built an extra million and a half houses over trend in response, then you will have a classic well-behaved bubble which we had in the U.S. housing market. Without that, uh, the world would have been quite different. It was driven and the power and the juice was provided by the housing market and all the amazing subprime 
stuff that went with it. So you mentioned moral hazard. Um, I don't find a lot of people who share my belief on this, but I have to bring up yours. You have suggested that we should have let more than just Lehman Brothers visit that lovely building downtown with the columns and the bankruptcy judges inside. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think one of the problems we have today with the steadily increasing levels of debt on each cycle wave is that the moral hazard has never been truly broken. In the end, the bet has been, if things are going well, you're on your own to make money, and if things go badly, we will come and help you. Mm-hmm. And as long as that is there, there'll be more risk taken each cycle, as more or less there has been. So you end up with and privatized they, profits but socialized losses. Socialized losses. They bailed out the rich bankers and made the homeowners suffer. And I thought that was a bad choice. They should have done more to help the homeowners and, and less to help the bankers. And I think, obviously, you can't let AIG, City, and the others all go under together. But you could and should probably have let one of them go. Uh, the difference between City and, and Lehman and AIG is that uh, Goldman Sachs had an enormous amount of its future wealth and income hinging on AIG insurance. Uh, products that Be- were insuring because of all the derivatives. In yeah, all. the derivatives, which no sane person would ever have, have insured, mm. was offered insurance by some dopey department of AIG in such enormous quantity that had they defaulted, uh, the future of Goldman Sachs is in extreme doubt. I think they would have failed. Really? It's that, yes. it's that and, much and exposure? If you say, what is really different between Lehman and AIG? They said they couldn't bail out Lehman, but they could bail out AIG. And one of the huge differences is that enormous amount of junk, 70% of which was uh, uh, covering uh, Goldman Sachs and 30% everyone else added together. But uh, my choice, nevertheless, would have been City. Well, what is this, the third they, or fourth they were, bailout they've gone through in the They were technically century? bankrupt. If you mark them to market, they were way under. Uh-huh. And, and Badgett and banking authorities say, you know, if you have a run on the bank, you better protect them. This wasn't a run on the bank. This was technical bankruptcy. Right. They had made a lot of bets that didn't work. They were bankrupt. There's a big difference between <clears throat> liquidity and insolvency. And, and insolvency. And this was way on the wrong side of insolvency. And you, you should have picked one of AIG or City and let it go. And you would have had a deeper, you would have a had a deeper pullback in Dow asset 5, prices. Dow something like that? Yeah, Dow, Dow 5,000 or, or 55. But it would have been healthier in the long But it would have recovered just the same. And today, the undertone would be slightly different and most of the data would be the same, huh. in my opinion. Quite fascinating. I only have you for a few more minutes. Can I, there are two, a couple of issues. Sure. I really think that I have missed. Sure. Uh, you asked me what we do with the Grantham Foundation. Yes. And I should say a very important 25% of all our grant making is done to communications. Uh, uh, 15 little groups who do investigative journalism who try and change the hearts and minds of politicians and the general public uh, to counterbalance uh, the, the forces of obfuscation that we have discussed. Is, is that effective? Are you seeing progress in that space? Well, it's a bit of an unequal struggle. We put some money into the carbon tax in Washington state and lost. We were outspent 12 to 1. But you have to do pick your spots and do the best you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we try and do. And I think in terms of investigative journalism and other efforts, it's, it's first rate. Um, otherwise, we look for the point of maximum leverage where uh, 
a big organization like WWF or the Nature Conservancy right. is, is doing something that we think really impacts uh, the problems of agriculture or uh, climate change, uh, water, uh, fishing, uh, things that will really matter to the well-being of the world as we go forward. Let me ask the, you about the... Go on, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the, the other thing is I wanted to elaborate on the population problem in Africa where all of the three billion that's forecast for incremental population between now and 2100 is basically in Africa. Wow. And uh, let me just give you some terrible numbers. When I was born, there were 28 million Nigerians. There are 190 today. And the mid-range forecast for 2100 from the UN is 780 million. And can that country support? Of course not. So between now and then, what misery and collapse and basically robber barons and regional bandit chiefs are going to go on. Uh, That'll be a nightmare over there. A nightmare. And if you ask them today, 50% would like to emigrate. And what wow. that will be in 10, 20 years, Lord alone knows. And you see the damage that hundreds of thousands of immigrants have done to the liberal traditions of Europe. Sure. And the stability of politics. And you replace that with an attempt to have hundreds of millions. You simply can't get there from here. Right. Right. And how much does the the destabilizing of European politics affect the behavior of the Russias and Chinas and the U.S.s of the world, the megapowers? And where does that leave us? I think that is the thing we should really focus our attention. Quite, quite uh, frightening. Um, you mentioned the Nature Conservancy. I was curious as to, because I notice in this part of the country, I frequently see spaces purchased or donated to the Nature Conservancy. There's the little sign with the green leaf. How effective as an environmental strategy is the idea of taking a parcel of land and removing it from farming, from development, from housing? What does that do for us? You, you need some genuinely wild pockets and corridors between them to maintain a hope of having a a successful wildlife. Any sort of biodiversity. Yes. WWF recently said that we had lost 60% of the mass of all the wildlife added together wow. uh, above the level of insects. So we are not exactly winning this struggle. So you need that. But you also need uh, to, to limit climate change. If you have all these lovely corridors and the climate goes up by 4.5 degrees centigrade, Doesn't most matter. of what you've done Right. It doesn't wasted. make any difference. All right. So I only have you for another five minutes. Let's get to our speed round with our favorite questions. God, I could keep you here for hours and hours more, but your wife will kill me. So I don't want to do kill that. Kill me first. Um, <laughs> all right. So tell us the most important thing we don't know about you. No, I'm an open book. Open what, book. What you see is what you get. Um, early mentors. Who are the people who helped shape your career? I think my grandfather... Um, he was brought up Quaker. He, 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 he gave up Quakery, but he stayed with the spirit of, of being a Quaker. He, he was a good person. He didn't believe in flamboyant spending. He became quite wealthy and um, used his money very wisely and, and discreetly. Uh, I think that's... Set an excellent example. Yeah. And, and by the way, Yorkshire values uh, are, are very much value-oriented from an investor's point of view, so that it, when you read Ben Graham, you, you tend to go, duh, uh, you know, cheaper is better than more expensive. I get that. And uh, I, don't, I don't see quite as much magic 
in in the the value heroes uh, perhaps because of that background. So so let's talk a little bit about the investors that influenced your approach to investing. What thinkers have shaped the way you look at markets? Uh, ben Graham, obviously. Um, no, I don't think Ben Graham did much. I will give it to Dean LeBaron, who uh, I had a hard time with in general. He was a brilliant propagandist. Uh huh. He he could uh, sweet talk the uh, pension fund officers out of the trees, and uh, take them off to Russia and on trips and things like this. And what he he showed me was that we're a pretty boring industry, and a little bit of bizarre can go a long way. And how important it is to project your ideas. Having great ideas and and not projecting them doesn't get you that far. So I, I owe him that. Uh, so let me get that on paper. At least I've said one good thing about Dean LeBaron, <laughs> and that's a pretty good thing. And um, I learned an enormous amount from personal experience speculating in in what was a very uh, uh, interesting speculative surge in 1968, 69 in tertiary, quad, quaternary stocks, tiny little stocks uh-huh. that would tend tuple and then collapse. Wow. And we had an interesting group of people exchanging ideas and we made and lost fortunes. And I made enough to buy a house uh, in, in, in Newton without a, without a mortgage and a BMW, but I didn't do it. <laughs> I could have done. Instead, I maintained my speculative position in stocks that uh, disintegrated. And uh, from then on, uh, rather like Keynes getting it out of his system with commodities uh, and, and uh, Ben Graham going into the great crash leveraged long, uh-huh. uh, from then on you get to be much more conservative. Let's, since you mentioned Keynes, let's talk about some of your favorite books. What, what fiction, nonfiction, investing or not, what are some of your favorite well, uh, I, I made a little list quickly. The ones I like to recommend is one is called Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. Dirt. Uh, by David Montgomery. Dirt. Uh-huh. And, and it looks at what happened to bad farming practices and what it did to the, the ancient Greeks, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and, and, and the Romans, and the Mayans, and the Khmer. They overworked their local territory, and when the weather turned against them, that was it. It wasn't productive that was anymore. It. They didn't have any resilience. Wow. Uh, another one, somewhat the same theme, was called Immoderate Greatness, uh, which I recommended. In Immoderate the Greatness. Yes, it, which is a quote from uh, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Uh-huh. And the subtitle is Why Civilizations Fail by William Ophel. And that's a very short book that covers all the reasons, hubris, complexity, overworking your local resources, and, and, and so on. Um, that bring civilizations down, which is really quite terrifying because almost everything they list uh, applies to today's modern world uh, to some considerable degree. And, and the one that I, I like the most really is hubris because every civilization tends to think that they're going to survive because they're so goddamn uh, brilliant. <laughs> and and uh, the infinite capacity of the human brain, which is illiterate historically because the brains were the same for the Assyrians and the Babylonians as we have today and the Mayans. Uh, but every civilization thinks it's special. And after 400 years and your brilliant viaducts, the Romans get pretty confident. And finally, uh, uh, the weight of bad luck and bad fortune brings them down. And uh, that's what we have. To, we're a two or 300-year-old organization, uh, sorry, civilization, modern 
modern society, and we're the first global one. But we're not old, we're not seasoned, and we're nothing. There are Mayan civilizations, uh, Tikal, it's 1,200 years mm-hmm. of, of, of civilization before it, it was brought down. Any other books before we get to our final question? Um, yes, there's a very good book by Charles Mann uh, called The Wizard and the Prophet, and he looks at really this continuous struggle between the optimists and the Malthusians, mm-hmm. the cornucopians, I call them, and the Malthusians. Borlaug, who, who, who engineered the Green Revolution that saved millions from starvation, and a guy called Bacht, who, uh, who represented Malthus, and be careful and try and sustain your long-term ability. The uh, Wizard to, and the Prophet. The Wizard and the Prophet. And that sounds fascinating. And our final question... What do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew 40 years or so ago when you were getting started? <laughs> the world was so straightforward 40 years ago, and there was so, such a limit on the, uh, on the talent in the business that if you showed up and used your brains, you were likely to do pretty well. And um, you didn't need any help. And uh, now, when I've learned all my lessons, the market is so difficult and so full of talent, uh, you need lots of help. So uh, that question doesn't really compute for me. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for doing this. This was absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking to Jeremy Grantham. He is the chairman and co-founder of GMO, managing over $71 billion. Uh, If you enjoy this conversation, well... Be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. And you can see the other, gee, we're coming up on 250, I want to say 220, 230 uh, prior conversations we've had. uh, They're available for download for free. Uh, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Uh, you check out my daily column. You can find that at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Carolyn O'Brien is our audio engineer this year. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.